Well, good morning, Sailorville Church. It is a month where, uh, at times, churches around the globe have paused to remember those of, uh, of our own Christ followers who are being persecuted for their faith. And so we're going to do that this morning as we remember them. But before we do that, let's jump into our text in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. My name is Jason. I'm one of the elders. I'm on the team here. And uh, it's a real privilege to be able to share God's word with you this morning. Let's read, as I read, listen carefully from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Paul says to his friends in Thessalonica, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, here's why, to establish and exhort you in your faith. That no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were going to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. While we typically don't experience the kind of intense persecution that some of our brothers and sisters do around the globe, we can still certainly enter into them in their sufferings and persecution as we pray for them and as we remember them. Here are a few stories that came out of an organization called Voice of the Martyrs just a few days ago. Listen carefully. A Somali Christian family is in police custody after being arrested for telling their neighbors about Jesus. Police released a statement on October 5th that they had captured, quote, two individuals who were apostates and evangelists spreading Christianity. These individuals should be fully aware that they won't escape the hand of the law enforcement officers and that the spread of Christianity will not be allowed, end quote. As a result, other Christians in the region have fled the country in fear, anticipating more arrests. A safe house sponsored by Voice of the Martyrs, has been overwhelmed with believers seeking temporary asylum. The arrested couple have two children who are in prison with them. One of them is a two-month-old baby. So please pray for all Somali believers in this critical time, along with this family in police custody. Now, a story from Laos. A teenager, only days after he accepted Christ, his name is Seng, A-S-E-N-G, was already facing the persecution that Jesus already already spoke about. After his parents learned of his decision, they sat Sang down to talk with him, telling him that he needed to renounce his, quote, foreign, unquote, faith. And if he didn't, they would kill him or kick him out of the house. When Sang told him that he wouldn't, they bagged up his belongings and they told him to leave. Go stay with your Christian friends, they told him. You're not welcome here. Stop this religion at once. Sang is staying with Christian friends, with assistance from missionaries and others that support him. Pray that he remains firm in his faith and grows in maturity in Christ. Not quite 2,000 years ago, a community of Christ followers located in what's now known as the country of Greece experienced persecution by religious authorities and ostracism from their own family members. No sooner had they trusted Christ, then the bottom seemed to fall out of their lives. So some sought solace in their suffering by turning to the Savior. 
But because they were so young in their faith, these trials were causing others to doubt and even become discouraged in their faith. The Christian community here in modern-day Greece needed some encouragement, some strengthening, and a strong theology of Christian suffering. And I think we need the same thing today, don't we? 2020. Meredith and I moved to Iowa five years ago, actually December, marks the fifth year of us being here. We loved our old neighborhood. It was a tiny little town. We lived at the bottom of a cul-de-sac. On the right side of our house lived Rob and Maria. Rob was sort of the unofficial mayor of the little neighborhood. He wore big, thick leather jackets with huge shoulder pads. He made his own wine, smoked cigars, drove an old Mustang. He was the guy everybody wants to be like, right, Rob? I loved hanging out with Rob. On the other side of our house was Jerry and uh, Stephanie. Jerry was a huge guy. In fact, one day I looked out our back window and I thought there was a bear in our backyard. Now, there had been bear in our backyard, but this wasn't a bear. It was just Jerry with his shirt off this morning. <laughs> Stephanie was a tiny little girl, but they were both uh, prison guards. Jerry was one of the wardens. Stephanie was a sniper, so you don't want to mess with them. Across the road, though, was one of my favorite neighbors. Is it okay to say you have a favorite neighbor? I know you do, right? His name was Frank. Frank used to tell us all kinds of stories about the old Italians. Frank's last name was Tarantini. Frank made literally made sausage in his garage. Frank told me one time that he used to sell bleach out of the back of his minivan. This is the kind of Frank that was our neighbor. His name was literally Frank the Butcher Tarantini. But Frank and I grew to enjoy each other. We became very good friends. And Frank knew that Meredith and I were believers. And so every once in a while, I would come home and Frank would be standing in the island in between our two homes in the middle of the street. And he would say, Jay! And that's what he called me. And I always answered because Tarantini. <laughs> and this particular day, Meredith and I had just come home. We had just gone inside, put our stuff down, and I heard a knock on the door. Jay! So I went down to the doorstep, opened the door, and Frank said, if God loves us, why does he let bad things happen? If God loves us, why does he let bad things happen? My friend Frank went on to tell me that his grandson, who was nine years old, had just been diagnosed with a rare form of cancer. And so Frank stood on my doorstep and cried, and I cried with him that day. Has anybody ever asked you something like that? It, it might actually be the greatest human obstacle to people believing in God. In fact, one atheist told me, it's the question that keeps me from trusting Jesus. How can he, God, be good and still allow bad things to happen at the same time. C.S. Lewis put it this way as he summarized the atheist position in his work called The Problem of Pain. Here's what Lewis says. If God were good, then he would make his creatures perfectly happy. And if he were almighty, he would be able to do what he wished. But his creatures aren't always happy. Therefore, God lacks either goodness or power or both. So Lewis says it's like this. If God is all-powerful, then he is able to prevent evil. But if God is all good, then he wants to prevent evil. But there's a problem. Evil exists. Look around. Things aren't the way they should be. Duh. You get it. Things don't seem right. Therefore, God is either not all-powerful, he's unable to prevent evil, or he's not all good, he's just unwilling to prevent evil. 
Lewis says that's the atheist position. So if God is so good and he loves us so much, then why does suffering exist? Maybe you've asked a question like that, or maybe you've had people ask you. Maybe, in fact, you're here this morning, and whether you would put it in those words or not, you're asking that question. Something's happened this last week, or you're in the middle of something right now, and you are just saying, God, if you're out there, I don't get it. How can people say you're a good God, a loving God, an all-powerful God, and still you are allowing this, whatever that is, in my life? Suffering is a mystery that none of us can quite figure out, right? We've all asked that question, why? And most of the time, we don't come up with an answer that satisfies. So as humans, we try to put together a, a formula for suffering, or an explanation that somehow makes sense of a God who is good and loves us and with the reality that that same God allows us to go through horrendous human pain. How do we put those two things together? And so we teach our children to sing songs like, Jesus loves me, this I know, while they sit in quarantine because of a worldwide pandemic that's turned their lives upside down. By the way, the vocabulary that kids have today is so different than it was even a year ago, isn't it? Pandemic? Quarantine? Social distancing? We quote Romans 8.28, all things work together for good, and we tell people, each other, that things like God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, and that is true, and yet Christians in Somalia are fleeing for their lives, and teenagers in Laos are getting kicked out of their homes and threatened to be killed. Derechos are ripping off our roofs here in our community. Loved ones are getting cancer, and sin seems to be winning the battle for the souls of our friends and family members. And if you're like me, sometimes you sink down into your bed at the end of the day, and you just look up at the ceiling, and you say, Why, God? Maybe you've been there. So what do you do when it seems like your world is falling apart? How should someone who's trying to be more like Jesus respond when hard times come? All of us are going to face these questions sooner or later. It may not be that we're on the run for our lives because we're being persecuted for our faith in Jesus, but sooner or later we will all go through deep trials, won't we? In fact, someone has said when it comes to trials, you're either coming out of one or you're in one or you're about to go into one. And when that happens, everything that we say we believe is put on the line. Now listen to this carefully. Suffering has a way of revealing the gap between what we say we believe and what we really do believe. Suffering has a way of revealing the gap between what we say we believe and what we really do believe. In fact, maybe this is a good time to define this idea of suffering. Our modern dictionaries will, will say something like, suffering is the state of undergoing pain or distress or hardship. But I love this definition by a woman who probably knew a little bit about suffering, in fact, a lot more than maybe we do here even this morning. She was the wife of missionary Jim Elliott, who was famously killed in 1956 by the very tribe of Warani Indians that they were trying to reach with the gospel. Elizabeth Elliott. I think said it best. Suffering is having what you don't want or wanting what you don't have. Isn't that so good? Suffering is having what you don't want or wanting what you don't have. By the way, Elizabeth remarried after Jim was killed and her second husband contracted two forms of cancer that took his life also. Think Elizabeth knew a little bit about suffering? Yeah, I do. 
In the first five verses of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul is writing to some friends of his who are new believers who suddenly and unexpectedly found themselves in the middle of a period of great suffering. They were being persecuted for their faith in Jesus, and our text shows how Paul reassured them and encouraged them to stand firm in trials. And this morning I see two truths that will change your perspective. Two truths about trials that will change the lens that you look at suffering through. Two truths about trials that will change your perspective. And here's the first one. We are sometimes forsaken. That's so hard. The truth is, we are sometimes forsaken. Look at verse 1 of our text again. Therefore, Paul says, when we could bear it no longer, when we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. The word there is literally forsaken, isolated, left lonely. Verse 2, we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to you, Thessalonians. So we're in chapter 3, which follows, of course, right on the heels of the end of chapter 2, where Paul has just expressed his heartfelt desire to be with his friends in Thessalonica. Now, these are friends who he had discipled and taught and, and mentored in their faith, coached, really, in the early stages of their relationship with Jesus. In fact, Paul says these are friends who are really more like children than acquaintances, friends who we referred to as his hope and joy, the very treasures that Paul would one day present before Jesus as his reason for boasting. By the way, isn't that what it means to disciple someone? To pour your heart and soul into them so that they learn to live like Jesus? Paul, who's a master discipler, is making an amazing statement about what he saw when he looked at the trophy case of his life. Now picture this. A man who had every reason humanly to boast. That's what Philippians 3 is all about, right? He pictures himself before Jesus when Jesus comes back and, and when Jesus says, Hey, Paul, what evidence do you have that you lived for me on earth? And Paul says, Jesus, my, my, my greatest accomplishment, my biggest trophy, the thing that I'm most proud of, it's not a what, it's a who. It's a who. And that who is you, Thessalonians. Paul says. See, Paul understood that the greatest accomplishment he could make for the kingdom of God wasn't necessarily something he did, but someone he discipled. I think it's the same for you and me. When we get to the end, whether death or, or the rapture, and we look back at our lives, are we going to regret the time we spent intentionally helping other people be more like Jesus? I don't think we will. We may regret the time we spent amassing wealth or gathering things or worrying about our reputation, but spending time helping more people be more like Jesus is never time that's wasted. The Paul's heart is with these new Christians in Thessalonica. He, he desperately misses them, but he has questions about their faith. So when he couldn't stand it any longer, he took action. And when Paul's concerns for his friend's faith outweighed his concerns for his own comfort, he sends his buddy Timothy to them. Now, let's not, not overlook the, the magnitude, the weight, the heaviness of what Paul is doing here. He's intentionally sacrificing for the good of his children in the faith. He's putting the needs of others before his own. He's serving them. Do you put the needs of your kids before yours if you have kids? Earlier this summer, my mother-in-law, Meredith's mom, bought our family a trampoline, one of those big ones that you get at Sam's Club or whatever, and you set it up in the yard, and all the neighbors come, and jump on it. 
And we set ours up in like a thousand degree weather, so we we're dripping with sweat, you know. We get the thing set up. It came, we, we, we ordered these stakes that screw into the ground so that, you know, heavy winds, like we ever get that in Iowa, won't, won't take it away. I left the stakes on the workbench because I thought that'll never happen. A couple of weeks later, I uh, came home and our trampoline was folded up like a taco in the neighbor's yard. <laughs> I learned a new word, derecho. The stakes were on the workbench. I had a terrible attitude about this thing. You know, Judah, our son, loved it. The neighbors came over and used it, but I had to mow around it. And I had to move it every time I mowed if I wanted to get underneath it. Or you had to crawl down on your belly with the weed whacker and try to get all the weeds that are underneath that thing because the sun doesn't shine under a trampoline. The thing's awful. I hated it. I was bemoaning this to one of my friends here in the office and expecting him to say, yeah, me too. I would hate that. What he did was amazing. He looked right at me and he goes, you know, sometimes you need to die to yourself for your kid's sake. Oh, come on, dude. <laughs> Look, man, I got to mow. Did you not hear I got to mow around the thing? Did you not hear what I said? <laughs> Think about the situation here. Paul, Paul's in Athens, right? Modern day Greece. He's being opposed and hindered by Satan himself. He's living in ungodly, unfriendly, antagonistic culture, surrounded by men and women who would rather see him dead than hear him speak. He's got no cell phone to text or to call his buddies. He's got no email to send out a missionary newsletter to all of his prayer partners. He doesn't even have an Instagram feed where he can check on th uh, uh, hashtag Thessalonian church to see what they're up to, right? He's all alone, forsaken. And Paul's a team guy. You know that about him. He serves in community. He, he does ministry with others. Every single letter that he writes, he's talking about the people that are with him or the people that he's going to or the people that he misses having around him. And that's why it's so incredible that Paul is, quote, willing to be left behind in Athens, willing to be forsaken, willing to be isolated, willing to be intentionally left alone. And we have to ask the question, right? Why? Why would God allow one of the greatest missionaries the world has ever known to be left alone without his closest teammates? What could God possibly be thinking? Doesn't he love Paul and have a wonderful plan for Paul's life? Surely he wants Paul to be happy. I mean, my goodness, if anybody deserved to be comfortable, it was the Apostle Paul, right? He's the Apostle Paul. Paul says, sometimes we are forsaken. Why? Here it is, for the sake of others. Sometimes we are forsaken for the sake of others. Sometimes suffering leaves us feeling alone and isolated and even forsaken. And those are realities that we cannot deny. The Apostle Paul felt it, and you and I have felt it. Even Jesus himself experienced it on the cross so much that he cried out, My God, my God, why have you, what's the word? forsaken me in Matthew 27. Jesus felt it. So if suffering is a part of life that God allows and we can't just wish it away by smiling and pretending that it doesn't exist, then why does suffering exist? Why does God allow sorrow and pain and hurt in our lives? For one, because your suffering can be a gift to others. What you're going through right now responded to it correctly, can be a gift to the person next to you. What you're going through and the way God is holding you up through it might actually be for the sake 
of those around you. Look at what the same Paul said to his friends in Corinth who were enduring some of the same kind of persecution as the Thessalonians were. Second Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 6. Paul says this to the Corinthians, If we are afflicted, that's really since you're going to be afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Is it possible that God's allowing something in your life right now or that he's brought you through something painful in your past? Not not just, or could we actually say not primarily for you, but for the sake of others? What if God has allowed you to go through the desert so you can turn around and lead someone else who's going through the same kind of desert? Just a little bit further behind you. On October 22nd of 2011, Meredith's father, Brian Crocker, passed away after a short but really intense and difficult um, human battle with a terrible disease called ALS. It's known as Lou Gehrig's disease sometimes. It attacked his legs, the muscles in his legs, and specifically the muscles in his throat. He couldn't talk, swallow, couldn't eat. We fed him through a feeding tube through his belly. It was terrible, terrible, terrible disease. And as Meredith and I walked through this with, with our family, and the people who had gone through something similar, who had seen loved ones with awful diseases and sicknesses, they, they, they came out of the woodwork to grab our hands and to walk through the sorrow and the pain and the confusion with us. And by the way, sometimes that just means shutting up and listening. When Meredith's dad died, hundreds of people showed up to his funeral. Their suffering was a gift to us. The way they responded to pain in their own lives was a present that we unwrapped at that funeral and continue to unwrap. In fact, God has given Meredith and I several opportunities with people really all around the world to talk about suffering, having what you don't want and not having what you do want. So here's what it comes down to. What what is it that God has allowed you to have right now that you don't want? Is it COVID? Maybe that's why you're watching online this morning. Is it cancer? Is it unemployment or maybe a job that you can't stand? Maybe it's a child who's turned his or her back on God or a spouse that doesn't even seem to notice you anymore. Or maybe it's something as simple humanly as a car that doesn't start every once in a while or a bank account that seems to be always at zero. Or has God withheld something from you that you wish you had right now? Maybe for you it's stability. Or maybe it's control. Or maybe it's comfort or or health. Maybe it's answers during this time, right? What if, like Paul, you saw your suffering as a gift to others, your hurt given to heal those around you? Forsaken? Maybe. Maybe. But for the sake of others. What if instead of saying, woe is me, I wish I had that guy's life, or I wish I didn't have to go through this Instead, what if we put our arms around each other and we said, hey, friend, I've, um, I've been where you are. Let my burdens be a blessing to you. Let me comfort you with the same comfort that God comforted me with. 
First, we are sometimes forsaken for the sake of others. Next, Paul says, we are destined for testing. We are destined for testing. Those are the exact words he uses in in verses 2 through 5. We sent Timothy, Paul says again, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish you, exhort you in your faith so that no one will be moved by these afflictions. Here it is. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand, no surprise here that we were about to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass. You know it has. Verse 5, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and all of our labor in establishing you in the faith would be in vain. So twice in this passage, Paul refers to the faith of the Thessalonians. In verse 2, the purpose for Timothy's visit with them or to them was to help establish their faith. Establish, that word means to bring about some kind of structure or a framework or, or you might say a trellis that the vine of their faith could grow up on. And when, and when he was there, he was to exhort them, to encourage them, to challenge them, to help them dig their faith roots deep into the truths that they had been taught. And one of the truths that Paul and others had taught them while he was planting the church in Thessalonica was simply this. They were destined for testing. They were going to suffer persecution. In fact, Paul reminds them again in verse 4. Hey, we told you that you were going to suffer. It shouldn't be any surprise that trials have come. Persecution and pain are going to be a steady diet of your life now as a new believer. Same for us. In fact, Paul uses the same kind of language that's used of Jesus himself in Matthew 17. Jesus says of himself, so the Son of Man will certainly suffer. Should be no surprise. It's as if Paul is saying, listen, if you want to be more like Jesus, then you need to go through suffering just like Jesus did. Oh, come on, Paul. We do want to be like Jesus, don't we? In fact, we want to be so much like Jesus here at Sailorville Church that it's in our vision statement. It's on our t-shirts. It's in our digital bulletin. It's on our website, our business cards. It's on stickers and logos and letterhead. More people. What is it? More like Jesus. Do you want to be more like Jesus? (laughs) Yeah, you see where this is going. (laughs) You're not idiots. Jesus suffered. Jesus sacrificed. Oh, come on, Paul. Jesus surrendered. Do I really have to do that to be more like Jesus? I don't want to. And And in tears of sweat and blood, In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, our Savior, said, My Father, Dad, Dad, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Please, Dad, if there's any other way to save humanity and to bring you glory, if there's any other way, please, let's do that. Nevertheless, Jesus says, Not my will, but your will be done. Matthew 26. And that's one of the ways we can grow to be more like Jesus, by learning to live like him in his suffering. But listen, it's our reaction to trials that determines the results of the trials. It's our reaction to trials that determines the results of the trials. And here's the deal. We we are destined for testing. We're destined for testing. But that's not the end of the phrase. For our growth. 
to grow our faith. That's why we're destined for testing. And that's what Paul says when he uses the word faith the second time in this passage in verse 5. He says, I sent Timothy to strengthen you, to encourage you, but also to learn about your faith, to see how you've been responding to the trials that God has allowed in your life. Yes, you're destined for testing. So how have you responded? Have you wavered in your faith? The word there literally means like the dog wagging its tail. Have you gone back and forth in your faith? Or are you solid in your faith? Have you run from God? Have you crumbled under the pressure of persecution, or has your faith grown? I've got the amazing privilege of being part of a group of guys. There's about 10 of us that meet on Tuesday mornings. There's other groups of guys that are doing the same thing, about 50 overall here right now in our church are men's Bible studies that are meeting in small groups. The group that I'm in happens to be going through scripture and a book called How God Makes Men by Patrick Morley. It's a fantastic book. Women, you should read it too. The author says this, God is more concerned with your character than your circumstances. God is more concerned with your character than your circumstances. Could could God be more concerned with your response to this week's election than whether or not you're happy with the results of the election? God is more concerned about your character than your circumstances. In other words, God will allow circumstances that you may not choose, suffering, pain, sorrow, to help you grow in your faith. God is far more passionate about your holiness than about your happiness. Well, that's hard to hear. Morley, the author of this book we're studying, says, Faith is a muscle. It only grows when it gets put to the test. Faith is a muscle. I love that but I hate it because I want to be ripped. I mean, I want biceps like this. I want to have pectoral muscles that are massive. I want to be built. But here's the thing, I hate working out. Now that's a problem, right? When you want the results of the workout without doing the work of the workout, that leads to an issue. And so this is what you get, sorry. But, but you get it, right? I mean, we understand this. We all want to be men and women of faith, but we don't love the struggle that it takes to get there. And this is why James, the half-brother of Jesus, a leader in the early church, says this in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. I'm reading from the message paraphrase. Eugene Peterson says it this way, Consider it a sheer gift. Underline, circle, highlight, grab a hold of that word gift, friends. When tests and challenges come at you from all sides, you know that under pressure, your faith life is forced into the open and shows its true colors. Oh, that's good. Now catch this next sentence. Don't try to get out of anything prematurely. Oh, come on, James. That's too hard. Can I just learn a little bit and then get out of this trial? Can God just teach me a little bit and then let go of the suffering? Why? Why don't try to get out of anything prematurely? You see the word mature in there, right? Let it do its work so that you can become what? Mature and well-developed, not deficient in any way. Oh, that's hard, but it's good. So trials, testing, suffering, struggles, they're actually gifts given to us by God to help us be more like Jesus when we let them do their work in us. And folks, what a good God. He gives us what we need and he withholds what we don't need so that we can grow in our faith 
so that we can be more like Jesus, which is what we say we want. Remember my buddy Frank, the butcher Tarantini? So there I am at the front door. Frank's in tears. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people, innocent people? How can God be both loving and allow things like this to happen? Jay, is God really that loving? What Frank didn't know is that Meredith and I had been away at a fertility appointment, and we'd just come back from a two-and-a-half-hour drive from Philadelphia. And we were seeing our doctor for an eight-week ultrasound, and for the third time in three pregnancies, the baby didn't have a heartbeat. Three times. Three different pregnancies. Three miscarriages in our first three pregnancies. And two more after that. Suffering has a way of revealing the gap between what we say we believe and what we really do believe. How can a good God let hard things happen to people that he loves? But God isn't asking us to trust him for something that he hasn't already gone through himself. Now, now, now think hard with me. Get our minds around this. John 3.16, God loved the world so much that he gave his only son. Now, we love being on the receiving end of that gift of Jesus, don't we? Oh, yeah. But what did that mean to God that he gave his son, his only son? What did it mean for God? It took love. It took sacrifice. And maybe even sorrow. When Jesus was on that cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God couldn't look at his own son. It wasn't because he didn't love his son while Jesus was on the cross. It was because he couldn't look at the sin that Jesus was carrying. My sin and your sin and all of our sin was laid on Jesus while he was on that cross. And God couldn't bear to see our sin on his son. Jesus was forsaken for our sake. The rest of the verse that whoever believes in him would not perish, spend eternity in hell without Jesus, but have eternal life, Jesus' life for your life. Will you accept that trade today? The gift of Jesus' suffering, his burial, his resurrection for your salvation. What a gift. This is the good news of the gospel, and it's what we're all about here at Sailorville. That's the gospel, living in response to Jesus' gift of suffering to you and me. Now, God is good all the time, right? Everything that touches your life has either come from him or been allowed by him. That's a huge statement. Because everybody in this room is going through something you would not choose. Or you're about to go through something. Or you're just coming out of something. Do you believe this? That everything that touches your life has either come from him or has been allowed by him. The things that you and I would never choose, the suffering, the sorrow, the sacrifices, all of those are gifts from God to bring others hope and to grow your faith. And so here's the question. How are you responding to the gifts of suffering that God is so graciously giving you today? God Thank you for those gifts. How 
strange it sounds to say thank you for the gift of suffering. How odd it seems humanly for us to bless you for the burdens of sorrow, of pain, of persecution. How strange for us to say thank you, Lord, as we unwrap this gift of suffering right now. And yet, God, that's what you ask us to do. To take these gifts and to offer our hurt to help others in their pain and to respond in a way that grows our faith, that our faith would be worked out and stretched and pushed because of the trials and the suffering and the sorrow and the sacrifice that you've allowed in our lives. Thank you for being a good God who loves us and allows hurt in our lives for your glory.